I just got the good to go from the official representatives of the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, also known as Harvard now, and I'm going to jump right into this. How many of you were here last, last session yesterday? So a few, maybe it's better to, how many weren't here yesterday? There's a couple. Okay, so what I'm going to say today has absolutely nothing to do with yesterday. No, it's absolutely built on what I talked about <laughs> yesterday. It, it's really not. But we talked a bit about yesterday the expectations we bring to the Bible and how we don't always think about it this way, but how the, the expectations we have of what the Bible is and how what the Bible is supposed to do when we read it and engage it, how that has a huge impact on how the Bible functions for us as followers of Jesus. And I'll get into a little bit more of that here in just a bit, but first, a couple of disclaimers. I really have a dilemma today in that I have several things I want to cover. I'm not sure I have enough time to cover them. This material, I did eight weeks of this material at my home church. I'm not trying to condense it all into two sessions, but there are so many moving parts and connections that I always feel like if I say this, I have to say that, and then that's going to lead me to that. And I already know I can't cover everything, or cover the bases the way I want to. And so like I said yesterday, if I say something that piques your curiosity or raises a question for you, perhaps a, a good question or a bad question, one of those really troubling questions, I would encourage you, if you can't, give me the benefit of the doubt. If, if you're really interested, go to the PrestonRoad.org website. You can find this series of teachings, and you can listen to the whole thing and figure out, am I really a heretic, or did I just appear to be a heretic in these two sessions here during <laughs> these lectures? These are, I will tell you, what I'm doing, what I did yesterday, and what I did and I'm going to do today. These two are the opening messages in in the series, so they sort of set the stage for other stuff to come. I thought I would start this way, though, this story. Years ago, I, I, Heather and I, my, my wife is Heather, we've got two boys, Caleb and Elijah. They are now 16. Caleb, in two days, will be 17. Lord have mercy. 17 and 15. <coughs> Junior and freshman in high school, but oh, eight or nine years ago, when they were still little enough that we had to watch them, we left them at home this week. Two teenage boys at home by themselves, three nights. We know not to push it and make it four, so we're going to fly home immediately after the session. But years ago, we were at an Ikea as a family. It was kind of back in the days where we had just moved to this city where Ikeas were kind of new to us. And if you've been to Ikea, you know, you can make a day of it if you want to at an Ikea. You take a walk, you have a meal, you sit in the furniture, you lay down in the furniture. And we're, we're making our way through Ikea. And we look up, and our youngest son, Elijah, is missing. I don't know if he wandered off while we weren't paying attention or if we wandered off while he wasn't paying attention. Either way, he was gone. And there is that moment of panic. Like, where could our son possibly be? And we find an employee who makes an announcement over the PA. We've lost a little boy. If you can find him, please bring him to someone official looking, blah, blah, blah. And five minutes later, the good people at Ikea notified us, we found your son and we'll bring him out to you in just a moment. And so they brought him out to us, safe and sound, in a flat box. Which is what they do at Ikea, right? Okay. <laughs> Did they really? No, no. <laughs> They didn't, but I would have been fine with that if in that flat box they had also included an instruction manual. 
Not that if you've ever bought anything at Ikea, their instruction manuals are all that helpful, but isn't that what we would love to have in so many instances and situations of life? Wouldn't it be great if when you do have a child, and they hand the baby to you in the hospital, they say, here's the baby and here's the instruction manual. Here's everything you're ever going to need to know about raising this child. Here's how to put together a life for your child that will be fantastic. Wouldn't it be great if when we become conscious of our own existence and we start to take responsibility for our own lives, someone were to hand us an instruction manual and say, here's how you do it. I think a lot of us would like the Bible to be an instruction manual. One of the expectations we bring to the scripture sometimes is that if this is God's little instruction handbook for life, this is the rule book, this is everything you need to know about how to thrive and flourish as a human being. So here are the instructions, here are the rules, follow the guide, listen to the pattern, whatever the language is, and you can put together your life, a beautiful life, if you'll just follow these instructions. But if you've read the Bible closely, you know that in so many ways the Bible does not function like an instruction manual. It doesn't cover all the details. It doesn't address every circumstance or every situation. And that's what I mean when I say when we bring expectations to the Bible that shapes the way we read the Bible and it can then set us up for a crisis of faith or just a real conflict within our spirits of how am I supposed to take what this Bible says seriously when it does not always seem to be addressing my problems or my needs, does not always seem to be relevant to my situation. So one of the big questions we're asking in these sessions is, okay, what are the proper expectations to bring to the Bible? Not only so that we're not disappointed when it doesn't deliver on an expectation that it never told us to have, but also so as we approach the scriptures, we approach it with a kind of posture that lets the scriptures do in us and do for us what they were originally intended to do. Believe it or not, there's not a lot of stuff in the Bible about the Bible. When you read the Bible to see what the Bible says about the Bible, there's not a lot. Now, there's a lot of stuff about the Word of God, but that can mean the spoken Word of God. It can mean the written Word of God, some of the scriptures, but there's not a lot of stuff you find in the New Testament about the Bible, what to do with it, how to read it. There is one place, though. We looked at this passage yesterday, and it, for me, sets the parameters for what I'm trying to do in this series of teachings. It's where Paul talks about what Scripture does. He says, remember, it's God-breathed, inspired in some way, but what that means, we're not exactly sure. And what appears to be more important to Paul rather than what it means to say the Bible is inspired is what does it mean to say, or what does an inspired Bible do? And he gives us two functions in this passage. First, underline the one at the bottom of the screen. The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They're able to make you wise for salvation. And then the Scriptures are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, correcting, training, etc., so that you can be equipped for every good work. My preacher summary of this passage is this. An inspired Bible leads us to Jesus, and it trains us how to become more like him. 
Those are the two expectations, the legitimate expectations. I believe we can come to the scriptures and say, if we keep focusing on the Bible, we take the Bible seriously, we engage the scriptures, and it's going to keep revealing Jesus to us, leading us to him and taking us deeper into a relationship with him. And the Bible is going to somehow train us, teach us, equip us for righteousness so that we can be more like the Christ we follow. I'm going to try, and I may run out of time today, but I'm going to try to talk a little bit about both of these and how the Bible accomplishes both of these. Let's start with the first. The Bible leads us to Jesus by functioning as a witness. I want to think a little bit about what it means to approach the Bible as a witness. When the first Christians tried to explain the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, they use the Old Testament scriptures to do so. They have an experience of God that rocks their world. Christ lives, Christ dies, he's raised from the dead, and now followers of Christ are trying to make sense of what they have experienced. This is a new and fresh experience of God. And it's happened, it's real. But they are also people of the book. And as they are trying to explain and understand and grapple with the implications of this new experience of God, it is natural for them to say, are there any hints and clues about this in Scripture? Or is, we're going to try, if, if you're a Jewish follower of Jesus and you're trying to prove to one of your brothers or sisters that Jesus is the risen Messiah, crucified and risen Messiah, other than just telling the story, is there a way to use your scripture to help support the claim? So they had to go back and look for some kind of justification for this new thing God was doing in Christ in their scriptures. As I mentioned yesterday, we see Jesus doing this very thing in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus with his two disciples. He's telling them the story, and it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets really shorthand for their scriptures, he, Christ, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. They have a Bible study with the risen Christ. And as they're walking along the road, he's able to say, don't you see that the scriptures were telling the story that was leading up to my life, death, and resurrection all alone. Now, when we say that he showed them the scriptures or he led them through the scriptures, that doesn't mean he opened up his pocket Bible and gave them book, chapter, and verse of all of the verses that would explain his life, death, and resurrection. Most likely what he did is he was making connections and he was referencing different points, maybe something from a prophet, maybe something from Exodus, maybe something from the law. And he was linking all of these different allusions together and saying, now don't you see that through the resurrection of Christ, these scriptures take on a whole new meaning? He didn't break out his Bible. Didn't have a Bible back then that you could fit in your pocket or on your smartphone. <coughs> back then, they, they didn't have enough memory on their smartphones to put a whole Bible on them. They had a fishing game, and that was it. They just, and, and it was you just either put the net on one side of the boat or the other, and you saw how many fish you bring out. But, so he's having a conversation with them about the scriptures, and assuming they knew the scriptures well enough, he could allude to these different plot points in the Old Testament story and say it was all leading to a crucified and resurrected Christ. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15, 
when he's summarizing the gospel message that he preached. He has this phrase in there twice. It says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? The Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, he's saying it's there in the story. And then he appeared to the 12 and on and on and on. According to the scriptures, what does that phrase mean? Well, for Paul, he's able to do similarly what the risen Christ did on the road to Emmaus. Look back on your scriptures and you will see new meaning in these old words because of your fresh experience of a crucified and resurrected Christ. And so in a sense... These Christians, the first Christians, are reading their Bibles and are able to say, see, it was setting us up. It was pointing forward to Christ all along. The Old Testament story ends with a question, and Christ is the answer. But they didn't know the full scope of the question until they got the answer. Sort of like this. This is the season where a lot of network TV shows are wrapping up. And some of your favorite shows, if you still watch network TV, I'm not binging everything on Netflix, some of your favorite shows are going to end with a cliffhanger. That moment at the very end of the episode, at the very end of the season, where you go, and what? <laughs> What's the most famous cliffhanger ever? <laughs> that, so who shot JR hands down? I asked that question at church in Dallas, and I had one of our youth ministers came up and said, who is J.R.? And I'm, oh, so uneducated. But that was that great cliffhanger that captured the nation's attention. Who shot J.R.? What do cliffhangers do? They pose a question that you absolutely have to know the answer to. You think about some of the greatest cliffhangers in television history. Yes, who shot Jr.? What else? Will Ross and Rachel get back together again? <laughs> Why do they have to go back to the island for all the lost fans? How, is Jon Snow really dead? It can't be. It, it ends with a question. You think, what's the answer? The Old Testament story ends with a question. Is God going to keep his promises? Is God going to be faithful to his people? Is he going to keep his promise to Abraham to bless the world through Abraham's family? Sure doesn't look like it. The end of the Old Testament story, is God going to keep his promise to David to set on the throne one of David's descendants? Is God going to keep his promise to the people of Israel living in exile, given through the prophets that I'm going to forgive your sins and I'm going to set you free and bring you back to flourish in your land. Yeah, we're living in our land, but we're not flourishing. We're living under the Romans. Is God going to keep this promise or not? That's the cliffhanger. And Jesus comes and he's the new episode in the new season that says, here's the answer to that question. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is the answer to all of God's promises because in Christ, all of God's promises are yes. And so when the first Christians, most of them being Jews, read their Bibles, they read them with Jesus in mind and it opens up a whole new way of reading the scripture, which means this is not just a cliffhanger. 
Christ is not just a cliffhanger. I've got a way of showing this, actually. Sorry for the cheesy clip art there in the middle. but The Christ event, they go back and they read their Bibles and see it as an answer to a cliffhanger, but it's not just a cliffhanger. The Christ event, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, is also a twist ending. Because the answer to the cliffhanger question was one no one but Christ saw coming. No one could anticipate a crucified Messiah who would need to be raised from the dead in the middle of history. And it's that twist ending that forced God's people to go back and reread the story in a totally different light. Because that's what twist endings do. You watch the whole movie, you think you know what it's about, and then there's a scene at the end and you think, I have to reconsider everything I've just watched. Turns out Charlton Heston did not land on a different planet where apes are in charge. He just landed in the future and he was on the earth. Turns out Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. That was like 30 years ago, if you haven't seen it yet. What happened? The twist ending. I now have to go back, and I could even re-watch the movie again, and I will see it in a completely different light because of this new information. That's what the resurrection of Christ did, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. It's the answer to a cliffhanger, but it's also the twist ending that caused God's people to go back and reread everything in a different way so that now they could say, the risen Christ could say, but also the Apostle Paul could say, well, look, this was there all along. And everything that happened to Jesus and everything Jesus did, it was done according to the Scriptures. So in one sense, when the first Christians were reading Bible, the only Bible they had, their Old Testament, they started rereading it, but not from the beginning. They started reading it backwards. They didn't start with Genesis. They started with the cross, and then they read backwards. Because it was the cross, the Christ event, that unlocked the meaning in their Bibles that they hadn't seen before. But also, they started writing new documents that became part of our Bibles, the New Testament. And what the New Testament is, is a series of writings or reflections by Christians who are trying to make sense of the life, death, and resurrection as they move into the future. They read the Old Testament backwards, but they're looking forward in the New Testament saying, okay, now that this has happened, how are we supposed to live? And they tell the stories of Jesus in some slightly different ways. You get four Gospels. And you have letters where people like Paul or Peter or others are trying to help groups of Christians, little churches, figure out what does it mean to live the Christ life now that you know about the life, death, and resurrection. And so the New Testament is actually written forward from the cross while we read the Old Testament backwards from the cross. And in both ways... It's the Bible that is used and read as a witness to Christ. The reason we take the Bible seriously, Old and New Testament, is because we find in the scriptures hints and clues and instructions and principles that help us make sense of the Christ event and what it means 
to live in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So that's what I mean when I say we read the Bible as, as a witness. A witness has a specific job to do. The Bible is God's written word that points to Jesus, the living word of God. And this distinction is incredibly important. So the purpose of the written word of God is to point to the living word of God. And the living word of God makes God known in ways that spoken and written words never can. The purpose of the witness, the written word of God, is to point to a person or an event, the life, death, and resurrection of this person. But the main event is not the witness. It's the person that the witness points to. That's why the foundation of our faith is not the Bible. The foundation of our faith is the resurrected Christ. There's, there's a church in Dallas that does TV ads. They're really well done. And last year, I, they did an ad where they're showing how great the church is, and, and it, it is so well done, professionally produced. If, if you were looking for a church, you would watch this ad on TV and think, I will definitely try this church out. But as I was watching this ad, a line caught me where someone was, you know, like you do in an ad, bragging about the church and how much you love the church and why you, you were glad you're part of the church. But someone in this ad said, yeah, we are a church built on the Bible. And the preacher geeky in me was just like, ooh. I know what you're saying, and I know why that line is attractive to a lot of people, Christians looking for a church. I get it, but I think it's wrong. I don't think the church is built on the Bible. In fact, Jesus didn't say he was going to build his church on the Bible. He said he was going to build his church on the rock. His identity, the confession of his identity as the Christ, or the apostles' confession and testimony of his identity as Christ, but not a book or a library of books. The Bible's not the foundation of our faith. The risen Christ is. But the Bible has a relationship to the risen Christ in that it's pointing from both directions back to the Christ event. That's what witnesses do. They point to someone else. They give a testimony about someone else. And the reason this is important is we have to be so careful that in being people who love to read our Bibles, who want to be people of the book, that we don't find ourselves taking the witness more seriously than we take the person to whom the witness is pointing. Because when we do that, we commit bibolatry. <laughs> bibolatry. We make the Bible into an idol. And we ask the Bible to do for us or to be for us what only God can do and be for us. It's possible to take the Bible more seriously than we take Christ. It's possible to turn the Bible into a kind of God that functions as an authority over us in a way that actually takes away authority from the risen Christ. N.T. Wright makes this point in one of his books that Jesus never said all authority has been given to the Bible. 
He said, all authority has been given to me as the risen Christ. And now I'm going to delegate my disciples to plant churches and to make disciples and to do teachings. And yeah, write part of the Bible, which is going to participate in the risen Christ's authority. But it's the risen Christ revealing God to us that has the authority. Not the Bible. The Bible participates in it by pointing to the one who has all of the authority. So keeping this distinction straight is one of the ways we can avoid Bibolatry. Taking the Bible more seriously than we should. Maybe I'm the first Church of Christ preacher you've ever heard say, you know, don't take the Bible too seriously. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying don't take it more seriously than you take Christ. Because here's what can happen. I want you to imagine that you take a trip to the Grand Canyon and you have a map. You got this, a route on this map. And you follow the route and you do what the map says. You take all the right turns and you arrive at the Grand Canyon. And you get out of your car and you're standing there before it. And you walk to the edge. It's the Grand Canyon. And you take it in and say, my goodness, what a fantastic map. I just can't believe how good and faithful this map is. <laughs> this map told me exactly where to go, and I did exactly what it said, and everything is great. I love this map. What a map. Other people are driving up. You're like, you got a map? I got a map. You, you need one of these maps? Somebody else drives up. He says, I got a map. And you can see from his map, he did not follow the same path to the Grand Canyon that you did. <laughs> he came in from a different direction. And immediately, you set out to correct him so that he can understand the way of the Lord more perfectly. Look, that is not the way you get to the Grand Canyon. Look, this is the map you're supposed to follow. And you begin to debate and argue with this other traveler about who has the best map, whose reading of the map is more true and faithful. Now, how ridiculous is it to think about standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and being obsessed and focused with your map? Or arguing or debating the legitimacy of your map to someone else when the majesty and wonder and awe of the Grand Canyon is there in front of you. In the same way, it makes no sense to read the Bible in such a way that we're so focused on what the Bible says that we miss the risen Christ to whom it points. It's what Jesus said some of the religious leaders were doing in John chapter 5. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You're reading your map. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me, witnesses. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Oops. It's possible to read, study, memorize the scriptures, and never experience the power of the resurrected Christ in our lives. 
And it happens when we confuse the witness with the one to whom the witness points. I think it's Brian Zahn in one of his books that says that the Bible, when you think about it, functions a lot like John the Baptist. John chapter 1, talking about John the Baptist, that John came at, to be a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John was really clear, and he was able to say, I'm not the one, I'm just pointing out the one. I'm not the light, I'm just testifying to the light. Don't follow me, follow him. And in the same way, if the Bible could talk to us, it would say, I'm not the light, I'm pointing to the light. I didn't come to draw attention to myself. The Bible isn't saying, look at me, follow me, trust me. The Bible says, look through me and see Jesus and follow him, trust him. He's the main event. He's the light of the world. Don't confuse the witness with the main event, the main person. There's another story in Matthew chapter 17, story of the transfiguration. You all know the story. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's got some of his disciples with him. And then Moses and Elijah show up on the mountain as well. And one way of reading the story is that Moses and Elijah are there representing the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets have showed up with Jesus on the mountain. And they are there to witness and testify to Jesus' glory. He's glorified on the mountain. Well, what does Peter do? He wants to build three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, as if they're all on par with each other, as if they're all equals. And there's a voice from heaven that says, no, 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 no. They're not equal. The two have served their purpose in leading you to the Christ, but they're not the same and they're not equal, they're not on par with each other, and having done their work, Moses and Elijah disappear, and then Jesus is glorified. Now, I think if we were to have a similar experience, if Jesus were to take us up on the mountainside, I think we would see Jesus there, and there would be three people with him. Moses, Elijah, and the Apostle Paul, representing the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings of the New Testament. Legitimately so. And I wonder if our temptation, like Peter, would be, oh, they're all here at the same time, all of our heroes. Let's build four shelters for them. To which a voice from heaven would say, you're still not getting it. No, 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 no. There's only one. And having pointing us to the risen Christ, Moses, Elijah, and Paul would disappear. And we would be left with the risen Christ. Because he's the one that the scriptures have always been pointing to, and he's the point of it all. So that's what it means to read the Bible in such a way that it functions as a witness. We're reading the Bible in such a way that it is leading us to Christ, but never confusing the Bible with Christ. We follow Christ, and the Bible shows us how. Which leads me to the second bit where 
and inspired Bible leads us to Jesus and it trains us how to be more like him. Now, how does it do that? I wish it was just like an instruction manual and gave us a series of instructions that we could follow all the time and always know what to do and always have at our handy disposal a little handbook that says, here's God's guidelines for being like Christ in any and every situation. But you know that the Bible does not work like that. Instead, the Bible invites us into a conversation about what it means to live the Christ life, and that conversation doesn't always render clear answers to all of our questions. It does not always function like a guidebook or a rule book. Rule book. Doesn't answer all of our pressing questions like, how do I raise my kids? each of them having a different personality? How do I manage my money? How do I get along with difficult people at the office? We can turn to scripture for guidance and wisdom in those areas, but sometimes the answers aren't as clear as we would want them to be. And one of the questions that I've asked is, why doesn't God make it easier to simply read the Bible and do what it says? Sometimes that's what Christians tell me the problem with most churches. You know, if we just read the Bible and do what it says, it'd fix everything. Well, have you ever tried that? <laughs> Why isn't it easier to just read it and do what it says? Well, the short answer is that sometimes a confusing, often complicated, not always clear-cut answer-giving Bible is perfectly suited to train us in righteousness so we can become more like Christ. And we can see how that works by paying attention to the way different parts of the Bible interact with each other. It's called reading the Bible in such a way so that you let the Bible be multivocal. A multivocal Bible is the perfect tool for training us to be more like Christ. And what I mean by multivocal is simply this. You have, we talked yesterday, the Bible is a library. 66 books written over 1,500 years by at least 40 different authors and editors, three different languages employing multiple genres, and all of these people are writing from different periods of time, different perspectives, writing to different churches, facing different problems. They're all writing about the same subject, essentially. Their experience of God in the world, or their experience of God in Christ. They're all writing from the sa about the same subject, but it's a really big subject, and so they're all writing from different perspectives. And so there are places in the scriptures where you're looking for some uniformity, and instead what you find is diversity. You have two different witnesses giving testimony about God or the ways of God or the teachings of God that don't quite line up the way you would want them to be. They're from multiple perspectives. That's what, I'm, what it means to say the Bible is multivocal. And to illustrate what that might look like, I want you to imagine that we were able, big round table, we set up a big round table and we were able to invite all the different writers of scripture. Say there's 40 something people sitting around this table and we got them all together for a round table. And all of them are experts, not only in the books of the Bible they wrote, but their experience of God that prompted them to write these books. They know what they're talking about. We verified that they are the authors of the original documents. And they all are qualified to answer questions about what they wrote and what they experienced. And so, as your representative, I'm going to ask them some questions. The first question we could ask them is, we've got you all here around this table, what does God require of humanity? 
And what does God really, he created us, he, he put us in this world, what does he want from us? And the writer of Leviticus is the first one to speak up, and he says, how long do you have? And everybody laughs. And he says, what God wants is sacrifice. That's what really matters to God. And he says, I'm not talking about metaphorical sacrifice. He wants sacrificed animals. That is the only way to have your sins forgiven and to stay right with God. And he wants certain animals sacrificed, and he wants them sacrificed in a certain way. You've got to get the sacrifice right. That's what God wants from humanity. And the prophet Isaiah speaks up and says, you know, I'm not so sure I would say it that way. And then he quotes from his own book, which is kind of a pretentious thing to do, but... <laughs> They, and Isaiah says, hear this word, you rulers of Sodom, listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah, the multitude of your sacrifices, and he looks over at the writer of Leviticus. <laughs> what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And it goes on. And Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Isaiah says, that's what the Lord wants. Micah, another prophet sitting nearby, says, yep, that's exactly what the Lord wants. Paul, the apostle Paul, Raises his hand. Says one word. Faith. God wants faith. And he points to Habakkuk, another prophet sitting around the table. He says, it's like what he said. He says the righteous will live by faith. That's what God wants. And James jumps in and says, yeah, but I don't think faith is enough. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Well, isn't this the, the debate we've always wanted to witness? <laughs> Paul and James going at it. And Paul says, no. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. James doesn't back down. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And then Luke jumps in. He says, yeah, but let's not forget repentance and baptism. Those things are pretty essential, too. Well, I know when I'm in over my head and I back out, we're not going to get a clear answer to that question from these guys. So I think I'll go with something a little easier to answer. So I ask, why does God allow bad things to happen to his people? And the writer of Deuteronomy quick with an answer. He said, bad things happen to God's people because they don't keep God's law. It's like what Moses said. If you keep this law, you'll be blessed. Your life will flourish. You'll live in the land. Everything will go well for you. But if you break the law, you will be cursed in every way imaginable. Bad things happen. You broke a law. And the writer of Exodus, and no, they're not the same. The writer of Exodus says, well, Sometimes bad things happen not because you did something wrong, but because of what your parents did. 
and quotes Exodus 34 and says, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Sometimes it's not you, it's them. You can blame your parents. Ezekiel says, but that's not what the Lord told me. In Ezekiel 18, he references a piece where he says, the word of the Lord came to me. He says, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them. The wickedness of the wicked will be charged with them. And the writer of Deuteronomy says, Amen. And the writer of Job says, so that's where Job's friends got their airtight theology from. <laughs> and he tells the story of Job, this righteous man who suffered horribly, even though he did nothing wrong. And only God can understand the reasons for his suffering. Well, about this time, I noticed there are four people over one side of the table sitting together, and they are rudely having a conversation among themselves. They really don't seem to be that concerned about our issues over here. And so a good facilitator that I am, I walk toward them and say, hey, what's so important over here? Why don't you identify yourselves? And it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sitting together. And guess what they're talking about. Jesus. What else would they be talking about? It's okay, well, since it's so important, why don't you share it with the whole class? <laughs> Tell us about Jesus. Matthew says Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He says following him is the key to keeping God's law. Luke says Jesus came to welcome the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized into the kingdom of God. And Mark says Jesus came to show that being faithful to God leads to suffering before it leads to glory. John says Jesus came to show us what God is like by doing on earth what he sees the Father doing in heaven. And they keep talking about their different perspectives on Jesus and some of the events that are so important to them, they don't, they don't, tell them in the same order and they don't seem to agree on what was most important in Jesus' ministry and they have different takes on how faithful the disciples were and how little faith they had. But they all end up pretty much at the same place with Jesus dying on a cross in Jerusalem and being raised from the dead. But even then, you ask them the significance of those events and each one of the gospel writers explains it in just a little different way. It's there in the story, but they all... Interpret the story just a little bit differently. That's what I mean by saying the Bible is multivocal. And that's how a multivocal Bible works. We have these conversations within Scripture, different parts of Scripture interacting with each other, sometimes debating each other, sometimes contradicting each other, sometimes disagreeing with each other. And it's for the purpose of helping us discern the will of God. Derek Flood has written a book called Disarming Scripture, and he uses a phrase that he calls faithful questioning. He says, there is a tradition in the Scriptures where God's people are expected to engage in the faithful questioning of Scripture and the traditions within Scripture. And we see this modeled throughout the Scriptures. Sometimes it's faithful questioning 
involving a human being and God. It's Abraham standing before God, debating with God, negotiating with God, even challenging God to do what is right for the sake of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes it's God in conversation with God. Because at one point in the story, God says circumcision is absolutely essential to be a part of Abraham's family. Non-negotiable. And then later on, God says that, you know, circumcision isn't essential to be part of Abraham's family anymore. And there are different people in the scriptures taking sides. Yes, it is essential. No, it's not essential. And there's this debate within scripture initiated by God, who at different points in the story says two different things about circumcision. Sometimes it's humanity in conversation with each other. The writer of Proverbs says, here's the way to live. This is God's wisdom, God's path. Follow this path and you'll be blessed. The writer of Ecclesiastes comes along and says, you know, I followed the path of wisdom all the way to the end and life is still meaningless to me. What's up with that? We see Jesus involved in faithful questioning of the law of Moses, Sermon on the Mount. Multiple times, he says, you've heard that it was said, and he quotes a commandment from the law or a tradition built on a commandment. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you this. And sometimes he just tweaks the law a little bit, sends it in a different direction. Sometimes he counters it and says, that's not the way we do it at all in my movement. And he gives a totally different teaching that takes his people deeper into the righteousness of God. It's faithful questioning. Now, what is the purpose of a multivocal Bible that encourages and models for us faithful questioning. I want to answer that with two stories and then we'll be done. The first story is from Cambodia, the second story is from Genesis. A couple of years ago, I got to do a two week long mission trip to Asia, Thailand and Cambodia, and I invited our youth minister to go along with us. He's about 10 years younger than I am and four or five inches taller than I am. We both have boys. I have two boys, he has three boys two-week-long trip. Neither one of us had ever been away from our families for two straight weeks. And at the tail end of our trip, about 10 days in, we were in Cambodia. We were staying in this little dinky hotel room, and we paid $20 a night for it. Look, you pay $20 a night for a hotel in Cambodia, it's a mission trip. You know what I'm saying? We, 10 days into it, we are missing our boys. Both of us, we're talking about it. We can't hide it. We really miss our boys. And one of the ways that I've always showed affection to my boys, one of the ways my boys and I draw closer to each other is we roughhouse. We wrestle with each other. It's our love language. And one day, after a long, hot day of serving church in Cambodia, come in at the end of the day, this rinky-dink little hotel room, and John, our big student minister, is, is laying there on the bed, and he's looking at his cell phone. And I walk in, and I just miss my boys so much. And I walk over to him, look down on him. I said, want to wrestle? <laughs> <laughs> he looked up at me and slid out of the bed and set his phone down and said, no. <laughs> want to wrestle. Second story, from Genesis chapter 32, it's when 
Jacob wrestles with the Lord. And in the wrestling match, Jacob won't let go. He wants a blessing. He gets a new name, Israel, which means to struggle or to wrestle with God. How interesting is it that the origin story of Jacob's new name and the name of God's people, Israel, means to wrestle with God. When we come to a bi- the Bible, a multivocal Bible, and read it and take it seriously, God is giving us an invitation. You want to wrestle? You want to wrestle? Because wrestling makes us stronger. It draws us closer. When we wrestle with the scriptures until we receive a blessing from God, it increases our wisdom, our decision-making capacity. The purpose of the Bible isn't to tell us what to do in any and every situation. The purpose of the Bible is to give us the capacity to wrestle with what we read so that we grow into maturity because we're wrestling with God, always seeking a blessing. In some instances, we can read the Bible and do what it says, but most of the time what we have to do is read the Bible and wrestle with it and wrestle with each other and how other people are reading the Bible. And it's the wrestling that makes us stronger and trains us for righteousness so that we are equipped for every good work in all kinds of circumstances. But sometimes it hurts. Terribly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you walk away with a limp. And so, may we be a people who take the scripture seriously. Seriously, because they relentlessly point us to the one we love. And the more seriously we take the scriptures as a witness, the deeper they lead us into the heart and mind and soul and will of Christ. And may we take the scriptures so seriously that we wrestle with what we read. And we let the wrestling match draw us closer and make us stronger so we can be more like Christ. So one hand go up. I'm not taking questions. Ha, ha, ha. We're out of time. I'd love to visit with you. We really are out of time. I'd love to visit with you, though. Come, come talk to me, but I need to let everybody else go. Thank you so much for being here.